Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia. I'm Michael Kackman. How you doing, Michael? I'm okay. I'm well, Christine you know. Becker. This is uh, We're recording this the day before the inauguration, so you're going to be hearing this under the President Trump regime. So we'll just, uh, you know, well, we aren't under President Trump's rule yet, so, so we're going to have some fun. Yeah, Radio Free South Bend. Yes, there you go. It's also the first week of classes, so we're also in a daze from that. That always fills everybody with joy. Yeah, exactly. Wonder. We're in great moods right now. Um, actually, my first week, or I only had one day of class in the first week, and it went pretty well. It's um, I'm teaching history of TV and media industries, and both actually feel really vital right now. I mean, it's hard to find motivation going forward and feel like where your little place in the world is matters, but... You know, thinking about that, I get to talk about Father Coughlin and, you know, the McCarthy, Army McCarthy hearings and these kinds of things in history. Golly, of TV. this stuff matters. This stuff matters, huh. yeah. And, uh, or in media industries, there's, uh, you know, talk of fake news and all that and talking about why actually understanding where our information comes from matters. So I guess I'm psyched for that. Yeah. And you should be. And it's a, it's actually a remarkable opportunity to be able to. Uh, sit with a bunch of smart people and have those conversations. So. Yeah. Well, both of our segments this episode, I think, relate to current events in various ways. Um, we've got a segment from our very own Stephanie Brown, which is actually about podcasting itself. So we've got a kind of a meta segment here. Yeah. We do indeed. And then we've got a second segment from David Fresco, who interviewed uh, Paul Douglas Grant about political filmmaking and the work of translation and film studies. And we'll follow that up with some talk about some current events tied to the issue of uh, political communication and intervention. I think one of the things that becomes difficult in these kinds of uh, tricky political circumstances is that you feel like you can only think about the thing that's right in front, right? You know, that, mm-hmm. that there's this kind of larger-than-life crisis. Um, and part of what's good about both of these pieces is that they come at, at these larger questions about how we communicate with one another and how we cross different kinds of um, boundaries and borders and reach out to one another a little bit more obliquely, right? So that it's not just like, what are you doing today about electing a reality TV star, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's... Um, it's more substantive and, and reaching out a little bit more broadly, thinking about how it is that we communicate politically in small P ways as well as big P ways. Yeah, that's a great description. And so we're going to start with Stephanie's piece. She is a doctoral student in media and cinema studies at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And she introduced an audio documentary or podcast project into a sex and gender in the media course. So uh, she's going to tell us how she did that and how it went. All right, let's hear about it. As a doctoral student in media and cinema studies, thrown into teaching four years ago with no previous classroom experience, I've been relying on peers, colleagues, and the very helpful teaching media website, journal, and Facebook group for suggestions and advice. Self-described as, quote, a site where critical media scholars can share pedagogical resources and talk about undergraduate teaching and all its frustrations and joys, the teaching media resources have been invaluable in navigating my first few years of teaching. So, I thought it would be useful to share one of my experiences in adapting an assignment from the site, hear from my students their thoughts about the process, and share a few snippets of their final projects. 
A few years ago, I was looking for a project for my 100-level media literacy class that would combine class concepts with production skills and came across a podcast project shared by Tony Nadler, an assistant professor of media and communication studies at Ursinus College. While my students largely weren't familiar with podcasts or, as one student told me, thought they were, quote, boring, the project ended up getting positive reviews at the end of the semester. This year, I found myself co-teaching sex and gender in the media and convinced my very cooperative co-instructor to help me adopt the project, which I originally designed for an entry-level class of 20 students for our much larger 85-person, 300-level course. We agonized over every step of the process, from how to put 85 students into workable groups, to how to design the project so that students who were media majors weren't bored, while students from outside of the department, a large percentage of whom had never taken a media studies class before, weren't overwhelmed. We also struggled with how to equip students with basic audio production and editing skills, and with how to foster an understanding of the language of the audio documentary, in much the same way that we tried to foster understandings of the language of visual media. First, an overview of the assignment. Students were put into groups of four to five people and asked to create a five to eight minute audio documentary centered around concepts from class and applied to a specific case study, whether that be a particular piece of media, celebrity, or cultural phenomenon. For instance, here are a few of their podcast intros. Hi, I'm India, and on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about weddings, the white dress, and the big day. We'll be talking about the appropriation of the black female form by white celebrities and where this originated. On June 1st, 2015, Mother Abby Betchel snatched a picture of two Target department signs, one marketing boys' building blocks and the other sign, girls' building blocks. In the last 70 years, women have slowly broken into the boys' club of comedy. Today we're talking about censorship and sex norms in film. On today's podcast, we have Ashley Williams and Alexandra Hardwick coming to you with some information on cultural appropriation, specifically Rachel Dolezal. In their piece, they needed to reference at least three scholarly and three popular sources. For instance... According to the Rudd Report performed by the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Here's how Rogers Brewbanker explains it in his 2015 article published in the Racial and Ethnic Studies Review. According to Xu Yu Li, who did research on the effects of cosmetic surgery reality shows on women's perception of beauty, TV and media does a great deal in perpetuating norms of beauty and reinforce staying young-looking as a goal. They also needed three interviews with subjects outside of the group, which ranged from friends to their parents to other professors on campus. Michelle Renee Nelson, who received her Ph.D. in communications from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, provides insight on her research of children's agency at a department store. After the show, we talked to Diamond, one of the audience members that night. We talked to Carissa Conrad, a master's student who teaches sexual communications at the University of Illinois. When we asked some of our peers about their fears of aging, this is what we learned. In the course of our research, we have had the opportunity to speak to a 46-year-old substance abuse therapist and a mother of five. She speaks openly about what she has had done and tells us about the reason of why she decided to have surgery. And finally, they needed to incorporate at least three non-voice elements like sound effects, ambient noise, or music. The record scratch sound ended up being a common one, and this podcast about cultural appropriation was my favorite use of it. Now... Before we go any further, we wanted to acknowledge that the term transracial is nothing new. Needless to say, doing this project for the first time with a class this big was a big experiment, and we learned a lot. 
At the end of the semester, I talked with a few of my students about the process and what they liked and didn't like about it. I'm Ashvini Mulshi. I'm a communication major and I'm a junior. My name is Samantha Garcia. I'm a junior at U of I, majoring in psychology. My name is Shayna Pembroke. I'm a senior studying speech and hearing science. Um, I'm Nicolette Simmons, an advertising major. I'm a sophomore. My name is Taylor Russo and I'm a dance major and I'm a freshman. Leading up to the final project, we set up checkpoints that they had to turn in to stay on track, including choosing a topic, writing a short pitch, writing a proposal, and they got extra credit for bringing in a rough audio for feedback. Students ended up appreciating this because it forced them not to procrastinate so much. Doing it step by step really helped because going through the process of like first choosing a topic and then kind of like doing the outline helped us understand. I really liked how you guys made small things do incrementally because we would have saved that towards the end. We had a portion of the class who were already used to audio editing, but to get the rest of the class up to speed, we had what I called podcast boot camp mid-semester, in which they went through the Pointer Institute's one-hour online course, Telling Stories with Sound, and we spent the class that week just listening to, analyzing, and discussing podcasting and audio documentary as a form of informative research-based storytelling. The podcast workshop thing we went through, that was helpful. Like, I've been listening to podcasts for a while, but I had no idea, like, those were things that you should know as, like, making a podcast. We also set up a resources folder that included video tutorials on Audacity, which is free editing software, how-to guides put out by places like NPR on how to create audio stories, and articles we thought would be useful to them in their process. Though judging from some of their feedback, I'm not sure how many groups actually used this resources folder. Finally, we gave tips throughout the second half of the semester every week with regards to interview techniques, checking out mics from the library, recording sound on their phones, and incorporating audio from the media they were analyzing. Once you explain all the resources that are at the library and everything, I like got more involved with my group. Talking with them brought out some of the struggles in designing media projects for non-production courses and more generally in teaching large classes taken by many students outside of the major. I was excited for it, but I think some people take the class just like going in thinking that it's going to be like an easy blow-off thing. I think that you guys did a really amazing job of, you know, kind of making things like very media focused, but also making them very accessible to people who, like me who might not really know too much about um, the field. I mean, I talk about this stuff in my other classes because I'm a media student, but like there are people in my group who are like biology majors, they don't necessarily get to talk about this stuff, so I think it's really appealing to them. Remember that your students are coming from all different blocks of life, and like some of them are going to be taking it like for their interests, some of them are going to be taking them as like GPA buffers, some of them are going to be you know, taking them because they have to, so it's just hard to, like, balance everything. The things groups seemed to struggle with the most were choosing a topic that wasn't too broad or general, recording unusable sound or losing recordings altogether, finding time for group meetings, having group members become unresponsive during the course of the project, and fitting all the requirements into the podcast with the time restraints. I think the hardest thing was, like, finding a direction and then having our interviews like you pick a direction and then your interviews like you can't control what they say so they can switch your direction I think our biggest hurdle was um, honing in and like really focusing on a specific topic and I think once we talked to you guys about that and kind of really got like a clear focus on that it was like bam 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 and like sometimes groups are really hard to get together <laughs> so I'd definitely keep it like four people probably max I think probably one of the biggest challenges, I would say, was just kind of working with group members, but that's always kind of a challenge that you find with group projects, so you just kind of have to um, be a good group member and put in your time. I think that because
because we were so ambitious and, you know, um, we just like in the beginning, we're like, okay, everybody's going to pick three friends and interview them these questions. And now it's like, you know, five of us did that. So it's like we have all these interviews kind of rolling around that we're trying to pick. The students also had suggestions for things we could do to improve the project for next semester. Now you know, like you've done the project once, like offer them like samples of like obviously topics that people have done. Maybe like start the podcast like a little earlier, like how we said in class and like the boot camp, like maybe at the beginning just to get like the like setup going. I also talked to my co-instructor, Andrea Rulick, a fellow doctoral student in the Institute of Communications Research, about what she thinks we should change for next time. Um, I do think to make this a more fruitful assignment, we need to have them meet with their groups earlier. Um, and I was also just shocked at how much trouble they had communicating with group members. So I think, yeah, building in more requirements of face-to-face -face communication with each other would be helpful. I think that and highlighting the importance of choosing a variety of interview subjects I think would be helpful because also in the ones we liked I think they talked to students and professors and people in industries then they kind of come together to round out it rather than mm -hmm. having kind of three fairly similar people giving the same idea over and over again. With this feedback next semester we're planning to tweak the project to try to encourage the behaviors the successful groups did well. We're going to require students to complete a short editing tutorial and record and edit a short piece of audio on their own to get a sense of what goes wrong earlier in the semester. We're going to make source requirements more clear so that they include media studies scholarly sources and not primarily sources from other disciplines. We're going to have rough cuts be required and not extra credit and force groups to meet more often and then either extend the time limit of the projects or tweak how many elements they need to include so they can fit them in in the time restraints. Finally, we're still trying to figure out a way to help them choose a topic, as this was by far the element they struggled with the most. We've toyed with the idea of having them center their work around a particular local event, person, or group in a way that grounds the theory in the course in a case study rather than picking a broad topic first. Though the biggest issue, I think, was that we didn't explain to them the goal of the project. Were they supposed to make an argument? Were they telling a story? Were they covering an issue? This is the thing that we most need to hone in on for next semester and what I think I need to do a better job of in assignments that I make in the future. Despite some pitfalls and issues, overall the students I interviewed and our class in general seemed to enjoy the process and were pleasantly surprised by the results, even if they were, like me, a little nervous about it at first. There's four girls in my group and we just get together and we get everything done that we need to and we kind of surprise ourselves. Um, at first I was nervous because like I'm not really good with technology. And it's actually flowing and much more easier to do than I thought. Like when I first heard about the project, like I was like really scared that it was going to be a lot and we weren't going to get it done. I remember kind of being like, oh my god, I've never done anything like that before. But I was also just kind of like, yeah, I'll figure it out. You know, it's a group project, so. You put into practice what you've learned all year. And so it's you incorporating everything, but like actually taking action and doing it. So I really like it. I mean, I've actually really enjoyed doing it just because I haven't gotten the opportunity to do anything like this before. Like, I feel like I want to get like more into like my computer now and like work on like my own thing. Yeah, it's really cool. 
Of course, uh, we here at Acomedia love that segment, both because uh, we love Stephanie and appreciate the work she puts in for uh, the podcast, but also the idea of having more podcast projects introduced into the classroom. There's so many uh, things going around now, video essays and those kinds of things, and so podcast projects seems like another great way to get your students doing something um, different than just papers in a classroom. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great project, and it's nice to see It's nice to see a, a diversifying toolkit. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of podcasts, because we are, you know, many are saying we're in a golden age of podcasts, but there's so many out there, they're hard to find. Um, the issue of preservation is also starting to come up. And so we wanted to uh, put in a plug for a new um, search engine that's uh, founded and directed by Jeremy Morris at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, the project is called, we think, Podcastry, which is podcast R-E. So Podcastry rolls off the tongue. Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's actually French and it's, you know, podcast. Oh my gosh, that sounds really Who knows? cool. It could be. I think we get to we actually get to set the set the norm for how it'll be pronounced. So Okay. I, I think podcastry is probably the way to go. Okay, let's go with that then. Um, but what this is, it's a searchable, researchable archive of podcast, and that name podcast R E, short for podcast research. And so it's a database, has links, metadata, um, records to over hundred and fifty thousand individual um, audio files and had podcast feeds. And the website description says what this is trying to do is uh, make efforts to preserve and analyze these resources um, or else we'll find ourselves in the same dilemma many radio, film, and television historians now find themselves writing and researching about a past they can't fully see or hear. So this is about not just providing access to podcasts but preserving them, making them easier to find. Um, they're also working on analytics and visualization features. Jeremy's working with Eric Hoyt on that. Um, so this is going to be a really fantastic resource for anyone doing anything from podcast research to just, um, you know, podcast fans trying to find more materials. Yeah, it's a it's a damn good idea. It's also, uh, I think it will become an important resource for people who are doing different kinds of cultural history projects. And so that, you know, their object might not be a podcast. You know, they don't necessarily have to be specifically interested in the form, but if they're interested in a, in a particular um, kind of cultural issue or, or content question, then this becomes a new a new resource for people to explore. Yeah, so you can find that at podcastre, so podcastre.org. Check it out. All right. We're going to kind of carry on now with our second segment, and this comes to us uh, courtesy of David Fresco, who conducted an interview on behalf of Acomedia, and we also thank Joel Neville Anderson for coordinating this uh, interview with David. David Fresco is a Mellon postdoc at the Center for Documentary Research and Practice in the Media School at Indiana University, Bloomington. And he recently had a chance to speak with Paul Douglas Grant, whose book, Cinema Militante, Political Filmmaking in May 1968, was published in 2016 by Wallflower Press. Grant is also the translator of Serge Denis' Postcards from the Cinema, published in 2007, and was one of the translators of the recently published translation of Jean-Louis Schaeffer's The Ordinary Man of Cinema. So David spoke with Paul about political filmmaking, the history of film theory, and the work of the translator in contemporary film studies. Hi, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Um, let me start by asking, what drew you to the filmmaking and film collectives that emerged out of the events of May and June 1968 in France, sure. well, and they compelled you, know, you to write a book on the subject. I was thinking about this earlier, and I and I, it's it it's obviously tough to pinpoint something like that. I think that uh, 
the principal inspiration initially was a fascination with Godard. And, but that goes back m much further. And, I, and, and it goes back to a time when this stuff was very difficult to, to get a hold of. So for instance, all the Gigavertov, the collective Gigavertov or group Gigavertov films were um, maybe sort of circulating on VHS in poor copies. I remember the, one of the most exciting finds in the maybe late 90s, early 2000s was in the Avenue A on, uh, the Kims on Avenue A suddenly showed up with a copy of La Chinoise. And I guess since the, they've closed, it's fair to say now that I actually took that home, dubbed it, changed the sticker on it and gave them back the, the dubbed copy. And what I heard was that Columbia actually ended up, I'd given the, the VHS to a few other friends and Columbia also dubbed the copy I had and eventually that was uh, the copy that Columbia had. Now, that, that's because, that's, I, I feel like it's a kind of a great sort of example of how difficult it was to, to get this stuff and how sort of precious it was. You know, it, stuff just wasn't circulating. So that begins to create that kind of, you know, that, that sort of aura of, of, of interest and pursuit. And particularly that, that period in Godard's work. So numéro deux, what, I don't remember what, there were three films that I believe Facets put out that were his collaboration with Amri Melville. But the stuff that was really Ziga Vertov was difficult to find. Okay, so that more or less is where the, the first sort of inspiration was. Now, maybe even a bit more banal, was that in the Olivier Assayas film Irma Vep, uh, there's a very brief clip uh, of of Class de Lutte, the group Medvedkin film. And that was the first time I had seen it. And I, it was really there that I thought, this looks, this is amazing. I don't know what it is, but it's precisely the kind of, of filmmaking that I had wanted to see and that I wish there was more of. So sort of jump forward about a decade. And I had worked on the uh, translation of uh, Serge Danet's book, Perseverance in French, and then it was changed in English to uh, maybe, unfortunately, I'm not sure, to postcards for the postcards from the cinema or for the cinema. And in that process, I had I sort of became uh, I, I, I I became friendly with Nicole Branez, in who does the curating of the avant-garde section of the Cinémathèque Française, and she started sort of writing about these groups, Cinelut not necessarily Cinétique at that time, I don't think, but Cinélude, Groupe Medvedkin, and uh, the works of Thorne, the works of um, even René Vautier, Yann Lemasson, who weren't necessarily collective filmmakers, but were certainly kind of fellow travelers of the movement. And actually, that's not entirely true, because Vautier did work uh, in, in, a, in a collective as well. In any case, she sent me, Nico Brenez sent me... Um, a DVD with maybe five or six of these films on them. And I just, I, you know, it was, it was something that uh, I jumped on. Now, it's also, I, I also, for the, the same period with the Godard stuff, where I was really getting into the, the trying to get into that mid-period Godard, or guess what is maybe even late, early at this point, um, 
I was really into uh, the the Situationists. And I was kind of there was had been a sort of probably at that point a third, like mid '90s kind of or yeah mid to late '90s a sort of third wave of interest. Stuart Holmes books were were uh, coming out. Um, there was a conference at the Drawing Center with Constant, who was the the architect who had created New Babylon that was part of the Situationist. And that, uh, you know, that May of 68 was uh, fascinating and, and certainly easy to romanticize. And it, that's one of the great things about this project, actually, was, uh, the, for me, uh, personally, was the kind of upending of the romanticization of it in some ways and, and finding something much more practical and much more located much more in the factory than I had, I guess, than I had sort of fantasized about when I was reading The Situationist. So those combinations of, of kind of politics, theory, and, and uh, I guess what we everyone calls now cinephilia, I really, I feel like they all kind of converged in this this term, whatever it is, this cinema militant, which obviously is a very wide term uh, or broad term, rather. Right. In those films, I found that that kind of hard kernel of what I had been looking for in those other in those sort of other uh, projects. Right. It sounds like you know, listening to what you're saying, there are really three key things here. The first is a kind of absence. You have these films which even in an issue of, I want to say cinema, but I could be wrong, yeah. from say 74, 75, where they do a preview yes. of the Ziegewerthog group films. They call them Les Films Invisibles. Uh, they already are calling them, as of the mid-70s, invisible films, films yeah. that can't be seen, films that haven't been seen. And of course, at the time, in an interview in 1969, Godard says, the only truly political <laughs> film is one that can't be shown. So we have these invisible films that need to be resuscitated, that need to be rediscovered, or which are circulating right. in a kind of clandestine way. On the other hand, there's this whole question of the politics of this, because given that film history has not lent itself to studying this type of cinema, you have this kind of marginal, underground cinema, as it were, not unlike the underground cinema that emerged in the United States in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, which is closely connected to real existing political movements, social movements, workers' movements. So you have two histories that are competing with one another, right? You have a film history, and then you have a political history, uh, the history of movements. And then that is then combined with this whole generational divide, where you have a kind right. of nostalgia, exactly. possibly, or nostalgia maybe in a good way, I mean, for these pre-existing historical moments. I feel like maybe in the early 2000s, these were being framed through questions of maybe nostalgia, melancholy, failure. S certainly failure. I mean, I think, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's, in a lot of ways, that's at the. That's also, that's also part of the impetus for for this project because it, that really became the kind of the the shibboleth of even what right what is being called the soixante-huitards that these people were saying that, that continually referencing sixty-eight as a failure, uh, denigrating the films for sure. Even those who participated in the making of the films, I think, as recently as a, a well, actually, I guess it's been a while now, but maybe four or five editions of Senses of Cinema ago, there was a, there was a two-part interview with um, Jean-Louis Comoli, who also, who, who, who had participated certainly in the movement, had participated in the moment, and 
uh, he was saying, you know, the only film, I think as many do, the only film um, uh, that really remains from that period is precisely the the Wonder Battery film. I don't know. You, you've seen it, right? With the yeah, yeah, yeah. Return to the to the Wonder Factory. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, in a way, right? Is is uh, is the is a film about a kind of is a film that 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 tries to describe the project as a failure. Whereas when we look at something like the Group Medvedkin's class, class de Lutte, which we have two two sort of female faces of May of '68 between those two films. One is this. I mean, there, there's no question that the Wonder film. Um, which there was that great documentary, I guess, in the 90s, Reprise, looking, right, looking for this, for the woman of the, correct, um, that, you know, what an amazing figure, this absolute refusal to go back to work after the, after the events, the sellout of, of uh, the, the Communist Party and the CGT. And on the other hand, we have... Uh, the female character, the, the female figure in Classe de Lutte, who is completely transformed as a result of this process. Com- you know, there's a kind of, at least within the film, of course, it's, it's, it's a construction. But the representation is there, the representation of something that we watch this woman become actualized over the course of two films, meaning the, in between the, the first film, which was the Abianto J'espère, made by Chris Marker, which was received so poorly by the workers of the region, and then the, and then the film that they undertake as a collective, working with the technicians from, from France, working with people like Godard and Marker, but make this incredible project um, that shows a different representation of, of May of 68 than the one that many people, like you said, in the late 90s uh, and in the early 2000s were sort of... I don't know, really pushing for this idea of, of failure there, which is not, which is not to also say that there was, uh, of course, there is a kind of failure there, but there's also this long history that flows out of 68 afterwards that moves up to Mitterrand that is, you know, feels like it gets lost in the, um, in the discussion, particularly when we talk about uh, filmmaking. Yeah, and there's also been this whole return to, say, the quote-unquote positivity of negativity in, right. in writers like Badiou, for example, who are not looking at failure as a kind of impasse, but failure as a kind of productive right. step towards actualizing these kinds of politics, which is his right. unrepentant Maoism, something which I think is, uh, which leads a lot of people to embarrassment as well. The question is of the Cultural Revolution, and then certainly the next big one, which is where a lot of for instance, there's an interview in, in the book or some pieces of an interview with a guy named Guy Patrick Saint-Derichard, who was a member of Sinelut. And he says that basically in 75, with the fall of Phnom Penh, uh, he felt like he and his comrades, they, they basically found out they had been applauding at the, at the massacre. And, and it's true that the, the, other, the, the other members who spoke about that period and the other people that I talked to about that period, the way that they framed, I, I, I'm not sure it's fair to say that it was regret that they were, that they described. Um, but they did try to contextualize what the experience was at that time of of championing the cultural revolution of being, um, feeling some sort of <laughs> excitement at, at uh, the arrival of Khmer Rouge in, in Phnom Penh, 
given what they had known at the time. The, 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 ultimately, what they said was what this was this wasn't Maoism that they were championing. It was French Maoism, and French Maoism for them was a, uh, was a championing of a, a cultural revolution that, like you said, is a fantasy of what the Chinese Cultural Revolution uh, uh, looked like, but how it was playing out. It also pertains to two things, though, one with right. the Zigaverta group and the other with Sinetik, which I think helped distinguish them profoundly from, say, Sinelut, Group Medvedkin, ARC, right. and so on and so forth. Sinetik mm. wished to think of itself as the cultural branch of a future Marxist-Leninist Communist Party, a party that did not yet exist, <laughs> but once it existed, Fargier yeah. noted, we would be its ministers of culture. Yeah. That was our fantasy. This, to me, I think is absolutely essential. And one of the great contributions of the book, Above all, I think, is this chapter on Cinetique, which opens up a whole mm. new horizon for future research. Right. No, for me, that's, again, that chapter actually was the, the one chapter that was not a part of the dissertation because the dissertation, when this began as a dissertation, it was primarily work that was done uh, around the factory. But Cinetique, for me, was also, you know, it's, it's uh, so I, I'm not sure I entirely want to say this, but it is the most fascinating of the groups for me because they are the ones that ap- approach it as theory and practice in such a concrete way that for every every film that comes out, there is a journal issue that comes out with uh, what they call the decoupage, uh, what uh, often the entire <laughs> screenplay is in there. So you end up with a, uh, the theoretical arm and the, the, the practical arm uh, being that there's the film and then there is the 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 writing in, in Cinetique. And for me, that the fact that we attribute the Baudry essay so much to, in a way, thinking that that is representative of Cinetique's position was one of the things that motivated me to really write about them because more or less, if we follow Baudry in those two essays or any of the apparatus writers at that time, not, there wasn't much to do politically with film. It was a, it, we, there was a kind of loggerheads that was reached. And so you think that, well, for a journal that's writing that way, a journal that, like Cahiers du Cinema at that time, has stripped itself of images and is more or less a kind of m- massive theoretical machine, there must not be a lot of film, uh, film production or even the interest in film production at that time. And here we have a group that is actually, you know, they're, making, they're making films, they're experimenting with uh, montage, they're experimenting with how to approach making films collectively, and that seems like it's something that was entirely left out of the conversation at, during the heyday of French theory. Yeah, you get the sense, though, I think there are two things going on here. On the one hand, we are constantly batter, battling against a very anglophone understanding of the development of French film theory. Right. right, because if you really go and look at all those issues of Cahier and even Cinétique, there is a sense where right. they are interested in cinema and not just saying, okay, the cinematic apparatus is, in, is implicated with bourgeois ideology, therefore every single image that is ever made is in and of itself the kind of ocular manifestation of this ideology. You know, this was Baudry's point, this was Plenier's point, but you can see almost from the beginning that Cahier was never, for example, so invested in that kind of interpretation, because to be so invested in such an interpretation right. would be to, sure. to throw the cinema out altogether. And I think with Cinétique, what you see is, you know, they start from a kind of cinephile position, and they may take on a, a, a vulgar Althusserianism in their desire to create a cinema that can produce science, as opposed to ideology, right? 
which Kaye right, says, right, well, right. reality is always an already an ideological. And if the, if the means or the material which the cinematic apparatus molds is reality, then it's always working on ideology and can't achieve at the level of science. So there are these kind of, you know, these debates which I think have real profound differences which aren't always uh, apparent. It's also about the translation into, and I don't mean just the translation in terms of the literal translation, but the translating to the kind of Anglophone acceptance or, or more than acceptance, the Anglophone fervor for this, for this kind of theory at that time, that there was definitely a cherry picking of which works were to be uh, brought in and which, which sort of remained in the margins. And again, we can go back and look at those, at those cinetic issues. And essentially what we find is a Kristeva and Sollers based, uh, Core, meaning a telkel core of essays is taken from, from Cinétique and much of the other work from Leblanc. There is the work of Farger, of course, uh, and, who, and Farger also left relatively early. You know, he left after, after the first film and went to work with Sans Fleur, uh, uh, a video, uh, video collective, uh, where Leblanc really kind of, <clears throat> up to this day, still maintains a kind of fidelity to that work. That stuff was not necessarily what was uh, what was what was translated, or or at least what was was uh, was foregrounded? Yeah, I mean the whole translation thing is fascinating because it's not even just it's about cherry picking. It's almost as if in the anglophone world you had a crash course in translation, and then people were like, "We have enough of these. Like we we've got it. We understand right. what French theory is, and now we can build our own kind of branch of theory, which is based upon that, which is right. then not sensitive right. to the vicissitudes, the transformations, the debates, arguments, critiques that are then going on on the other side of the channel. But it's a kind of uneven film theoretical development, so to speak. Um, completely, yeah. completely. I think there's a great project somewhere in there also in translating and subtitling the films, particularly um, uh, Quand on aime la vie, and all, but also the Bonneuil Bonpied, I think it's Bonneuil Bonpied or Bonpied Bonneuil, the, the film uh, about the special needs, uh, kind of in the labor force and the militant special needs community, which, is, which to me was fascinating. And both of those are still in... Uh, available and kind of watchable print. Those films are, um, they're definitely on par with something like The Situationist, the Deton films of The Situationist, or even just Guy Debord's films that created out of, primarily out of montage, but with a different political objective. And, um, well, in any case, that's, that would be sort of my, my last thought on that, is that hopefully that's something that can come to fruition, uh, something more substantial than Cinétique. And actually, that's, I'll present that at the, at, SCMS this uh, in March uh, more or less present the chapter on on Cinetique and show some some clips from those films. But this question of translation and availability, I think, is really essential. So basically, what I think some of your work is doing is you're filling a kind of aporia in French film historiography, right? If you take any number of books about French national cinema, these films are absent. Unsurprisingly, let's let's be honest. Right. Well, you know, we say the thing is, is uh, I, I feel like that's the I don't want to say knee jerk, but that's that that is a, it's it's a reasonable response. And at the same time, one of the things that I think I at least I tend to forget, and then when we think about uh, this idea of national cinemas and the fact that they primarily we think of national cinema as being the dominant national cinema of any given nation, and yet if I think for any of us outside of say. Bolivia, Argentina, uh, even Brazil to some extent. When we think about 
the national cinema, the cinema that we know of those of those countries, quite often what we know is precisely those militant projects. I mean, what what do we know of Bolivian cinema other than Blood of the Condor or uh, from Argentina? I mean, obviously Argentina has a long, rich tradition of of uh, film industry, but in many ways, most of what uh, at least uh, the academic and uh, cinephile communities would know would be things like Hour of the Furnaces, which is a so those, the idea of what represents the national cinema I think is really important. But of course, there's there's Frodon's book on French cinema, and he gives I don't know maybe a page to the to the kind of militant tradition. And then if we look at even um, Debec's book on Cahiers du Cinema. He gives it, uh, would be fair, he gives it 50 pages, that, that, that period, 50 to say, 50 to 75 pages, but it's nothing compared to what he gives to the yellow period, and even the 80s following it, no, the Asayas period, etc., etc. No, it's, def- it's definitely minimized, um, but the reason I say unsurprising is because a lot of the films you're talking about are really, they're activist documentaries, right. you know, this, is, true. this would be like it's- saying, but, and I think, we're right to say that you know a national cinema or a study of a national cinema is dominated by um, the dominant cinema, right? right? Because there is some kind of reciprocity or rapport between, you know, especially in France, say a state-subsidized uh, film industry, sure, and and the nation state. Just like there is a kind of isomorphism or homology between, say, Hollywood and Washington. So, in fact, the territory I think that you're trying to cultivate in cinema militant for French film historiography is akin to what David James was doing in Allegories of Cinema, Mm. is trying to identify these alternative modes of production, these alternative filmmaking communities in which, say, the social relations of production uh, are ways of working out and working through the very contradictions of these politics which are antithetical to the state, to the status quo. Yes. So it's almost it makes sense that go, to go back to Godard's phrase, you know, the only real political film is the one that can't be shown. That these films have to be invisible because do, the dominant ideology does not want to incorporate them until, right. of course, it finds a way to do that, and they become Edition Parnasse. And but, you know, and I think it's worth even put, you know putting Godard on the spot too and say, look, you've got Histoire du Cinéma, one of the great works of 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 filmmaking of the 20th century, and and a, and the self staging film, of course. We don't get any. We can, we don't. We, there's this. This period is completely. That well, was completely washed over well, as, as well. Von Dest is in there. What's that? Von Dest is in there when Glauber Roca is at the crossroads. I still, I, there is still something we ha- be, because of the kind of. Oh, of course, we, you have uh, Glauber. Who else is it? In Von Dest, there is. I mean, it's. It's still. It's almost like La Chinoise to the obviously. There's there are a more rigid political implications in that film, and at the same time, I feel like it fits much neater into uh, Godard's entire oeuvre than say something like uh, A film comme les autres, and, and those films uh, don't appear in Histoire du, uh, du Cinema. And he did a lot of work with Atelier Recherche de Cinématographie. So and that doesn't appear either. So there is a way in which it's also glossed over in in Istral du Cinema. So what's uh, what are the next projects, Paul? You know, I have two right now. There is um, 
I have a proposal for a book on regional cinema in the Philippines, which is, I just finished another book uh, that was published, uh, that was actually published here, same month actually, in June of this year, that was about Cebuano cinema, which is, that was sort of the one cinema that, again, we talk about national cinema here, national cinema is considered to be Tagalog cinema, which is the, which is the, na- the national language. And in the 50s and then again in the 1970s, there was another vernacular cinema that was the only real alternative to Tagalog cinema. So I wrote a kind of short history. And then the other project is, a, is the translation, um, a kind of short introduction and translation of the, to and of the work of Michel Fioc for... Uh, 1968, because we're coming up on the 50th anniversary. She killed herself in 1968. And again, she's someone that obviously uh, has has a a very uh, rich relationship with uh, film writing and and politics and then of course and then of course practice but I think it's going to be a hard sell (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off or not but I think she's someone and also the fact that you know, she's one of the few female critics uh, uh, of, of that time of um, with a body of work. We, we, when we, and, and, and the last thing would be that she comes from Positif rather than Cahiers du Cinema. And I still have this, you know, as much as I love the writing from Cahiers and from the, from the 60s and 70s, there's still that reservation about how we initially think, the, the initial response to Cahiers du Cinema is that it is it was a left-wing uh, it was a left-leaning review from the beginning, and clearly we know that's not the case. And that actually, in many ways, if there was a review that was um, politically motivated from its inception, it was Positif. And the fact that here we have a female critic coming from Positif, uh, who goes on to be a militant w- in Guatemala, uh, she's a, I find her to be a very fascinating figure. So I hope I can uh, find a taker for that. One. Well, that sounds great. I'm very excited for this. Thanks for talking. Sure. And, and I guess I'll see you uh, I'll see you in March. And we'll see each other in March. Okay. You know, there are probably more than a few things that we could learn from 1968 and from the filmmakers working in that period. Yeah, and I think that's one thing going forward. There's going to be uh, a lot of productive conversations, like we said at the top of this podcast, the history of TV class I mentioned, looking back and taking inspiration, instruction uh, from past events and using those to understand what we're facing, how we deal with it going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, if there's if there's one job I think we have, at least, you know, when I think about what I do, it's to try to think the present historically, right? And that means mm-hmm. always reaching back. Um, but also thinking thinking forward as well. Mm-hmm. Now that makes me think of the meme, you had one job. And mm. If we screw it up, yeah. we had one job. Well, but let's take that for inspiration to, yeah, to focus on that job and do it as best we can. We also have a, you know, as we mentioned, we're recording this just before the inauguration is going to happen. You all, all hear it um, after the inauguration and after all of the, whatever you want to call them, protests, marches, rallies, they have various uh, nomenclature attached to them. And Karen Vornalis is spearheading a movement to try to record uh, these 
events, what's happening, record responses to them, think through, reflect on everything that's happening, and especially tied to um, the you know top of the uh, Trump regime here. And so Acamedia is going to participate in this as well. So this project is, as Carol describes it, part of a consortium uh, approach to support fellow scholars who want to quickly disseminate, publish, and then get academic credit for work devoted to protecting the commons. So the, one of the first initiatives here is to uh, solicit work devoted to um, understanding what's happening in the inauguration, in the protests, in the marches. And so there's a bunch of different groups tied to this. Um, Film International is going to be doing some stuff in print. So we've been um, soliciting uh, contributions from people who are going to be attending events in D.C. and local uh, spaces across the country. And so that's something you can look forward to hearing in our next episode, the sounds of the inauguration and protest. And so if you have been uh, recording any of your observations or if you listen to this after the after the inauguration and you do and you have a bug to uh, to document your responses or those of people around you, send us a note. We'd love to include you. Yeah. And you can reach us at aca-media.org. Or wait, is that our website? I can't even remember. Is that an email address that I just said? Or was that a... Yeah, because I had an ad It's in both. It, right? It's both. Right. So, yeah. So our website, aca-media.org. And, oh, wait, our email address, info at aca-media.org. That's it. I forgot the info at... Um, and I also wanted to mention anything that gets uh, submitted on behalf of uh, Carol's efforts here. She has organized a workshop um, at SCMS in Chicago in late March, the Collective Action in 2017, Responding to Hate, Disenfranchisement, and the Loss of the Commons. This will be a panel at SCMS, and um, she's going to acknowledge the contributors' work at that uh, panel. So you can certainly plan to attend that in Chicago, but any work you want to uh, drum up tied to this could get acknowledged then at that particular panel. You can find links to uh, to that project on our website. Yeah, definitely. So look forward to the next episode where we can hear what's what's going on. Whole world is watching. Yes, indeed. So there's another one, another um, soundbite from the past we can revisit. All right. Hack Media is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. Plus support from SCMS. Couldn't do it without their help. Nope. And we'd like to thank our contributors to this particular episode, David Fresco and Paul Douglas Grant, and our very own Stephanie Brown. Yes, indeed. We're, it's really wonderful to have such uh, great colleagues that are uh, working so hard on this project. Yeah, and thank you also to Joel Neville Anderson and, of course, Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. As well as Todd Thompson, the maestro of the... Uh, the I need a better nickname for him today. Oh, yes. We got it. You know, it's a new year, new administration. Yeah. We need... And to Todd Thompson, the poet of the ether. Oh, my God, that's so good. Yeah. He could put that on a business card. Yeah, well, you know. All right. Happy 2017. Yeah. Woo. Here we go.